Hey there, thanks so much for joining us at Arendelle Bible Chapel for our online service today. Wherever it is that you're watching or listening, we count it an honor that you've chosen to participate with us today, and we trust that this service will be a blessing. In uh, a few moments, I'm going to uh, preach to you from God's Word. Um, before that, we're going to sing a song of worship together and after the message as well. But the starter service, I just want to read uh, uh, a few verses from Scripture and uh, to open our time in a word of prayer. I'm reading from Psalm 100, verses 4 and 5. It says about the Lord, it says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. We come today to uh, fix our focus on a great and awesome God, a God who is good, a God who's faithful, a God who's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we could ask or think. And uh, so just with that sense of reverence, but also a sense of joy, we want to approach the Lord together and really, really commit ourselves to him um, as we worship together in uh, singing and also over his word. So let me just pray for God's blessing on our time, that the Lord would be honored and that uh, his people would be blessed. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege that we have, the means that we have to, in a way, seek you together. Lord, you know our heart's desire would be to be physically here together. But in this means you have provided, Lord, we we, uh, we look to you and ask you for your blessing on our time. Would you touch lives, Lord? Would you help us to, to hear from you? And Lord, would you do great things for your honor and glory and for our joy? We pray for that in our time now, in Jesus' name. Amen.
Continuing our teaching series on the subject of the afterlife. Our series is called What Happens When I Die. Now, uh, today's uh, subject is one that, um, well, frankly, to be honest with you, I'd, I'd really rather not talk about. And my guess is that probably it's one that you don't want to hear about either. But the truth is, is that as I think about the, the afterlife and what the Bible teaches, I, I really feel strongly that I, I would not be... I would not be giving you a, an adequate, uh, full picture of what the Bible says about what's to come after death if I just avoided this subject. I had to remind myself this week that um, I'm an ambassador, not a salesperson. Right? An, an ambassador doesn't just show up and, and uh, uh, just, just try to make up their own message. An ambassador delivers the message of another. I'm not here to sell you on something. I'm here to tell you what the king says. And uh, the king says a lot about our subject today. And so in the context of talking about the afterlife, uh, I feel that it's important that I do talk to you today about the subject of hell and what the Bible says uh, about hell. How I'm going to organize this, uh, this talk for you is um, I, I'm going to really ask and answer five questions about hell. First question we're going to ask is, what is it? Like, what do we mean by hell? Second question is, why does hell exist? Third question is going to be, what is hell like? Fourth question is, how can a loving God send people to hell? And the fifth question is, how do I avoid it? How do I avoid going to hell? So that's, that's our outline, and, and I'll remind you of these as we go, we work our way through. So let me start with that first question. 
what do we mean by hell? What exactly are we talking about? I mean, you've, you've heard the word lots, right? I mean, you, you hear it probably most frequently in conversation. The people use it as an adjective or an exclamation. You've surely seen probably depictions of it, of, of varying kinds in, in shows or in movies. Uh, you've likely heard it lots in music. For those of you maybe a bit older than me, uh, recall 1979 and the, the rock band ACDC singing about being on a highway to hell where they uh, said they would go and, and party with all their friends. Those younger than me may know about Billie Eilish. She says that, uh, that it's good girls who go to hell, whatever that's supposed to mean. But the reality is, is that uh, all these, these cultural depictions can sometimes leave us uh, confused about what we're even talking about. And it's quite possible that maybe no one's ever just told you, by definition, what hell is from a biblical perspective. Well, here's, here's my answer. Here's what I wrote down in, in my notes for you. Hell is an eternal dwelling in the afterlife for the devil his demons, and people who have never received the forgiveness of sins. Hell is, again, an eternal dwelling in the afterlife for the devil, his demons, and people who have never received the forgiveness of sins. That's what, what hell is. Now, my second question is, is why does hell exist? Two reasons. First, hell exists for God to deal righteously with Satan. Hell exists for God to deal righteously with Satan. Satan is the champion of all evil. He's bent on doing anything he can in his power to oppose God, to ruin all that's good, and uh, to ruin anybody, everybody, and anything uh, that he can. Uh, oftentimes, we've seen the devil depicted as a little cartoonish figure in a red suit, or perhaps in, as some mythical creature with a Joker-like smile. Uh, I think that these these depictions are probably largely misleading. What the Bible tells us about Satan is something you need to know. The Bible has a lot to say about him. He's called the destroyer. He wants to destroy everything that there is. He's the accuser of the saints. So he's, he's the one that wants to heap on the guilt in your life and feel like there's no way out, that you can never change. He's uh, the adversary. In fact, that's what the name Satan means, is adversary. So he's, he is, he's not on your side. He's not on your team. Uh, in fact, he hates you. Uh, Jesus says that Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Uh, he's the master of deception and confusion. He binds people up in addiction and inspires abuse. Uh, Jesus says that he's a liar, a murderer, and a thief. And Jesus knows what he's talking about. Satan does not care if you're an atheist, an agnostic, religious, or irreligious. He doesn't care. What he cares about is that he wants to keep you from seeing and savoring the goodness of God. He wants to keep you from, from perceiving the beauty of Jesus and the goodness of the gospel. He, he is going down and he wants to take you and as many as he can with him. Satan is, as somebody has said, the embodiment of evil. And I think that's probably a helpful way to think about it. 
And the Bible says that in the end, God is going to destroy him. God is going to judge Satan and he's going to cast him into hell forever. In fact, Jesus said that's what hell exists for in part. He said the lake of fire is prepared for the devil and his angels, his demons. That's Matthew 25 verse 41. And the Apostle John looks ahead to the end and prophesied what would happen, what will happen in the end. Revelation 20 and verse 10, he says, The devil who had deceived them, who had deceived people, was thrown into the lake of fire. So that's what hell is for, in part. Why does hell exist? Well, it exists for God to deal righteously with Satan. Second reason that hell exists is for God to deal righteously with unrepentant sinners. Hell exists for God to deal rightly or righteously with unrepentant sinners. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, he says that when Jesus returns, he will come inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says they will suffer that's, these, that's unrepentant sinners who don't know God, who don't obey the gospel, the, that the gospel declaration is repent and believe. Paul says they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. In other words, they're separated from God. Hell exists for God to deal righteously with unrepentant sinners. Now, this is a tough teaching. This is a hard teaching. And uh, even some of you who agree with me are hearing this and feeling uncomfortable about it. And uh, believe me, I understand. The reality is, is that this is, though, is what the Scripture says. And so are we ambassadors or are we salespeople? We're, we're ambassadors, right? So here's, here's the truth. You want to know about the afterlife? This is what the Bible says. You know, most Canadians believe that there is some kind of heaven. 63% of Canadians believe that heaven exists. But it probably doesn't surprise you that a minority of Canadians believe that there is such a thing as hell. 42% of Canadians believe that hell exists. And I don't have specific stats on this, but I would say that probably a very, very small fraction of even those who believe that there is a hell, a very small fraction of those people believe there's any chance that they could ever end up there. It's, it's for other people. It's for the worst of the worst. Maybe you think that. Well, when you read the Bible, though, you find that you know, we might be mistaken about some of our assumptions. I want you to notice a verse in the book of Matthew. In fact, would you just turn there? I'm going to look at a bunch of different verses here today. In, but Matthew chapter 7 and verses 13 and 14, Jesus tells us something that, well, it, it, may, it may surprise us. He says there in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, he says, enter by the narrow gate. Now, that's, that's an invitation. We could say it's an invitation to come to him and ultimately go to heaven. He says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. For, uh, and sorry, and he says, and those who enter by it are many. So, so there's, there's many who go that way. Those who enter by it, the way of destruction, are many. He says, verse 14, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Now that's, that's tough to read, but it's Jesus talking. And he says, there is a way to heaven, but it's a narrow way. 
Few go that way. A lot more people than we might like to think go the other way. And there's probably lots of reasons for that. If you're going to go the Lord's way, you've got to acknowledge you need a Savior. You've got to acknowledge your sin, that you are the problem with you, that I'm the problem with me. We've got to submit ourselves to Christ and embrace Him as our, our Lord. And the path of following Jesus many times is not an easy path. It's a good path. But it's often very hard. And there's reasons why maybe people have considered Christ and, and said, you know, that, that's not for me. The way is wide, Jesus says, that leads to destruction. When we're thinking about hell, we're thinking about something that's very real and very serious. And when we look at why it exists, it exists for God to deal righteously with Satan, but also to deal righteously with unrepentant sinners. So when you read about the possibility of, of people landing in hell, let's not be too fast to say, well, that can't be talking about me. Because the Bible says that we are sinners. And the Bible shows us that, that uh, God's, God's justice, uh, God, God cannot be holy if he is also not just. And he will punish sin. Either Jesus on our behalf or we ourselves. Hell exists for God to deal righteously with Satan and to deal righteously with unrepentant sinners. So we've looked at what we mean by hell couple of reasons why hell exists. Now, my third question is, what is hell like? And for this, I'd, I'd like for you to turn to the Gospel of Luke. Okay, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. Uh, Matthew, we're in Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, chapter 16. And we're going to read from verse 19. And I'm going here because I think in, in this passage, Jesus gives us some insight in what, into what hell is like through a parable that he told about a man who went to hell. Uh, this man is never named. He's just called a rich man. He didn't go to hell because he was rich. You'll see that he went to hell because he was wicked. But he gives to us uh, in this story so a glimpse of what hell uh, looks like. Now, just for the context, again, it's Luke 16, verse 19. Jesus has been challenging some people who... Well, some religious leaders who he called out for being hypocritical and self-righteous. I mean, they, they looked really religious. They had this appearance of being godly, but Jesus knew better. He knew that in their hearts was greed and selfishness and envy. And uh, they, they appeared to be concerned about knowing God, but they were far from God and and didn't obey God, didn't submit themselves to him. To him. They, they quoted scripture verses but didn't live by those scripture verses, didn't believe in their hearts the word of God. And so they believe they're going to heaven because of their background and because of their position. And they saw that their, that, sorry, I was just thinking for a second, and they saw that their material wealth as a sign that surely we're going to heaven. They thought that because we're rich, therefore that's because God, God is happy with us, and so it's all good. But Jesus told them it's not all good. And he, he told them this story. Notice what it says, Matthew 16 and verse 19. It says, now again, this is a story that Jesus is, he's making up this story to make a point. These are his parables. But his parables are true to life. Okay, so, so it's, it's not like Jesus didn't tell science fiction stories, okay? He's, he's telling a story here that's, that's true to life that I think gives us a glimpse into what hell is like. He says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen 
who feasted sumptuously every day. So just stop right there. What's this man? He's rich. How rich is he? He's filthy rich. He's got everything he needs. The end of the verse says that he feasted sumptuously. So it tells me that he had lots to eat and he ate really well. It tells us too that, that he was clothed in purple. In, in the ancient world, uh, the, the purple dye that was in uh, a certain clothing was extraordinarily expensive. Only the wealthy uh, had that. So he's, he's really well off. It says too that he had fine, fine linen right down to his gitch. He was well clothed. Okay, so he's in, he's on our Armani, he's in Gucci, uh, he's wearing Prada. Remember, the devil wears Prada. He is, he is doing just fine. Now, this rich man uh, had somebody right outside his place who he regularly ignored, and that's uh, Jesus tells us about him in verse 20. Luke 16, verse 20, and at his gate, so right outside his door, at his gate, was laid a poor man named Lazarus. Now, why would they lay a poor man? at his gate well because dude is rich and so he's got some he's got stuff to spare he if anybody could help him out it could be the rich man and so they they lay this man whose name was Lazarus um, outside his door and I believe the name Lazarus means God has helped me and uh, that tells you how this guy's gonna end up in heaven anyway don't, I won't spoil the story notice it says verse 20 this Lazarus is covered with sores so he's, he's hungry and he's sickly. In verse 21, and he desired to be fed. So he's covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. So he just, he just wants the scraps. Just give me what's going to the compost. Okay, I, I don't even want a seat at your table. I just want the scraps. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Okay, that might sound cute and cuddly, but in the ancient context, this is a, a pitiable situation. Now notice verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Where is he? He's, he's, he, he's awaiting the resurrection that we've learned about, right? Where he will go and experience the full and forever salvation, body and soul. He is, he's with the Lord here though, right? He died, he's carried to Abraham's side, speaks of going to that, that intermediate heaven, that place where we're with the Lord in heaven. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to, the, to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment. So where is he? He's in hell. Being in Hades and, in tor and being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus. Oh, so apparently he did know who he was. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am, notice, I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in what? Anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who had passed from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, verse 27, I beg you, Father, to send him, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment." But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, they've got the word of God. They've got the scriptures. Let them listen to the scriptures. 
verse 30. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In other words, what, what, what is the power to save? How do people get saved? From seeing the miraculous? No, from hearing the word of God, the gospel. Now, with regards to what hell is like, i just drawn away here uh, three things, three realities that I see here in this parable that Jesus shows us about hell. First of all, hell is a place of full, uh, full conscious awareness. Hell is a place of full conscious awareness. People, you notice, you notice he, can, he could think, uh, he could talk, he could reason, he could remember, he could feel. Um, this, is not, this is not a dream world. This is not nothingness. This is not non-existence. This is a place of full conscious awareness. Jesus shows us that. What's hell like? It's a place of full conscious awareness. Secondly, hell is a place of misery. He talked about being in anguish, in torment. He said, verse 24, I am in anguish. And this lines up precisely with the many other descriptions that Jesus himself gives in other scripture texts about hell. For example, in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus described it as outer darkness. We're in a season of isolation in a sense right now, aren't we? Being separated from one another. From one another. And it's hard for most of us. For introverts, it's not as hard. But even for us introverts, it's hard. Hell, though, is a place of real isolation. It is not going to be a party with your friends. You're not going to be catching up with your buddies. It's a place of isolation. Outer darkness, Jesus said. Matthew 13, Jesus said that hell is, is like a fiery furnace. Matthew 13, again, he called it a place of sorrow and suffering, a, a place where there is gnashing of teeth, just a horrific, a, a sense of, of anger and sorrow and despondency. Jesus in Mark chapter 9 described it as a place of, of unquenchable fire. Matthew 25, he said it's a place of eternal punishment. What, what is all this? We listen to Jesus say, Lord Jesus, tell me, what is on the other side in hell? And he tells us it's a terrible place. It's a place of misery. It's a place of, uh, as we've seen, it's a place of, of real uh, conscious awareness. It's also a place of misery. Thirdly, what is hell like? Hell is a place where no one repents. Hell is a place where no one repents. Did you notice in Jesus' story about this man who went to hell is that he never ever expresses any kind of uh, sorriness for how he lived his life. I mean, he's sorry about his situation, isn't he? He wants some measure of relief, but, but never once does he say, I was wrong in how I lived. I, I can't believe how I ignored God and, and ignored my neighbor. The great commandments are to love God and love your neighbor, and I consistently, persistently didn't do that. I've sinned against God. There's nothing like that. There's no repentance. There's, there's no real remorse here at all. Uh, um, he, he, he also still views Lazarus as inferior to him. Right, he's saying, he, he's saying, you know what? Send Lazarus. Get Lazarus to dip his finger and to come serve me. Send Lazarus to tell my brothers to watch out they don't come to this place. He's, he still sees Lazarus as lesser than him. He's, he's unchanged. Here's the point. Nobody shows up in hell and turns over a new leaf. 
Hell is a place where, where no one repents. If we are unrepentant now, we will be unrepentant then. In fact, this is what the scripture teaches us. Revelation 22, verse 11, the verse says there, looking at, on the other side again, in the end, in the afterlife, and it says, let the unrighteous go on in unrighteousness. And let the righteous go on in righteousness. In the afterlife, one writes, you will remain in principle what you are already. Think about it this way. Jesus said eternal life is knowing God. That's what eternal life is. It's knowing God, knowing God now and knowing him forever. If you reject God and don't want God and resist and refuse his reign and rule in your life, if you don't want him, then in the end, you are going to get what it is you want. Only tragically, it turns out that what you want isn't really what you want. It isn't what's good. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, quote, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Hell is a place where there is, is no repentance. Someone said this, nobody wants to be in hell, but no one in hell is willing to bend the knee. And that's the picture we see here that Jesus shows us. So, so what do we see about hell? There's a lot of things we could say about it, but at least these three things. What is hell like? It's a place of full conscious awareness. It is a place of misery. And thirdly, it's a place where no one repents. That's what hell is like. That's what it's like. I don't like preaching this, but you need to know this. You need to know this and understand this. I think for the believer, as you think on these things, there ought to well up in you a gratitude to Jesus for what he saves you from. And also, too, an awakening for, for anybody and everybody to, to think about the realities of things that so often we diminish or dismiss. Jesus spoke about these in real serious terms, these issues in real serious terms, the reality of hell. So we've seen what it is. We've seen something of why it exists. We've seen what it's like. Now, my fourth question is, how can a loving God send people to hell? My guess is, is that most of you, even if you've gone to church like your whole life, you're, you're thinking to yourself, yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Where's my pen? Where's my paper? Well, let me give to you four considerations here as you think about this. How can a loving God send people to hell? God is a loving God. But we're reading today that there's many who will end up in hell. How do we square the wrath of God with the love of God? Four considerations. First of all, recognize that love and wrath are not incompatible. Okay, love and wrath are not incompatible. We often think that anybody who is uh, loving will not be wrathful. But if you think about it, that's, that's not necessarily true, is it? Timothy Keller writes this. He says, quote, All loving persons are sometimes filled with wrath, not just despite, but because of their love. If you love a person and you see someone ruining them, even they themselves, like even if they're doing it to themselves, that person you love, you get angry, end quote. Don't you? Isn't it true? And there isn't a parent out there, there isn't a grandparent listening to this, watching this, who doesn't know what I'm talking about. 
If somebody, if your child is being bullied or if they're, if they're filled with self-hatred, that, that fills you with grief and measures of real anger. And it's, it's not, it's why? Because you love them. So uh, the first consideration is that love and wrath are not as incompatible as we might think. Love and wrath sometimes go hand in hand. Second, how can a loving God send people to hell? Consider this. We ought to consider that we need to beware of cultural blinders. A second consideration when we try to wrestle with coming to terms with a loving God who could send people to hell, we have to contend with cultural blinders. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that in our culture, we love to hear Jesus on the subject of forgiveness, of turn the other cheek, of love your enemy, and, uh, and we should. We should. It's, it's, it, it is, it's uh, God-glorifying um, morality and ethics that the Lord gives to us, and so we should love that. But in other parts of the world, though, um, they don't receive it the same way that we do. You and I, in our culture, we tend to hear about love and forgiveness and turning the other cheek and loving the enemy as, as, as admirable, but, but talk of hell and wrath and judgment as, well, something really distasteful. In other parts of the world, it's the other way around. In, in some places, it's loving your enemy and turning the other cheek is a real stumbling block. Whereas the truths about the wrath of God to come is actually a comfort, is actually a reason for hope. I was reading an article this week, and if you have small children nearby, uh, this might be a good chance for you just to pause this and get them occupied with something else. I debated about telling this story, but I, I think I'm going to because it, I think it helps to clarify the issue. But uh, just govern yourself accordingly here. I read a story this week about a country that I won't name and a particular ruling group in that country that I won't name. And I read this story and I was utterly disturbed by it. In fact, I came up for dinner and my wife looked at me and she said, what's wrong? And I was not really aware of my demeanor, but I said, oh, I realized I was uh, uh, looking quite dour and disturbed and I saw it's just something I read. Well, what I read was a story of a man, an iron worker, a steel worker in this particular country who had been arrested and accused of theft. He was given a trial that lasted 10 to 15 minutes in which there was no evidence presented. There were no witnesses to testify but yet he was found guilty and he was put into he was uh, chained and put into a van and taken to a stadium where there were thousands of people gathered uh, to witness what was going to happen to him in the van on the way he sat with a 15-year-old boy who had also been uh, who had also been uh, tried in like fashion only he was accused of murder the 15-year-old boy sat beside him weeping and the man felt so sorry for him, and he did everything he could to comfort him, and he tried to assure him, listen, nothing really bad is going to happen to you. If only that were true. When they got to the stadium, the doors opened. The soldiers grabbed the young boy and took him out into the middle of the stadium, and I won't describe what they did to him in detail, but the bottom line is that they executed him there on the spot. And then it was this man's turn. I, again, I don't recall exactly what he's accused of stealing, but theft is what he was guilty of. They brought him out, they laid him down on the ground, they injected him with a hypodermic needle and cut off his hand and his right, his right hand and his right foot. He woke up in the hospital hours later in, as you can imagine, agony. Now you say, Ross, why would you accost us with a story like this? It is disturbing, isn't it? 
But the point that I want to make to you is that in places, there are real places in the world like this right now in which they see things very different. You and I have a hard time with justice and wrath, but in those contexts, the, the very fact that in the end, God will make things right is a comfort. And not out of a vindictiveness, but out of, out of the, the, the righteous hunger that we have for justice. And so my caution to you is you wrestle with a God of, who is loving, but also acting on holiness would be wrathful. I just caution you about presuming us, presuming our, our own sensitivities, our own sensibilities to be superior to others. We have cultural blind spots. Also, another consideration to, for us to consider is that we need to beware of inherent self-righteousness. Beware of inherent self-righteousness. We're regularly blind to our own fallenness, and I'll put myself right at the front of that line. Jesus told this story we read here, uh, this parable to people, again, who presume themselves right with God. Uh, but Jesus says they, they presume themselves good. They presume themselves right, righteous. But Jesus says only God is good, and no one other than him is righteous. We have, the Bible says, fallen short of God's glory. We think in our context that our, our finely tuned morality is the standard by which everyone ought to be judged and by which we ought to determine the difference between right or wrong. So we can ignore our neighbor and sleep with whoever we please and idolize comfort and justify sin and love the world and be self-centered and reason together that we're good because we're not as bad as others. And then God comes along and says that he's going to judge us for that. And we feel quite indignant. Why? Because of an inherent self-righteousness that we so often don't see. Beware of that self-righteousness that lingers within every human heart. Don't presume yourself righteous, but recognize the Bible's call for you to receive the righteousness of Jesus to be made right with God. So, so just beware, beware of our cultural blinders and also of our inherent self-righteousness. The fourth thing for us to consider is this, and this is really important. Bible-believing Christians, listen to me. When you read Revelation and you read about what's to come and God's judgments to come, it is difficult to read because we, we feel the weight of that. But do you notice that when you read the Bible, you get to Revelation, you read about the judgment to come in, in some of the greatest and maybe even graphic most graphic detail in all of Scripture. What you find there is not a single word of complaint about God doing anybody any wrong. Do you? God is never accused of acting unjustly or unfairly in the end. In fact, quite the opposite. He is praised for his righteous judgments. Revelation 16, 7, the saints cry out, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. I love Genesis 18, 25. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Bear in mind, loved one, as you wrestle with these difficult issues, that in the end, the Bible's testimony is that God is praised for his righteous judgments. And there is no complaint or hint of injustice in the end. 
What's the point of all this? Well, the point is, is that, is that as you ask the question, how can a loving God send people to hell? We've, we've seen that, that love and, um, uh, love and uh, uh, sorry, sorry, love, wrath and love are not incompatible together. Sorry, my brain froze on me. Um, we have cultural blinders. We are also often uh, blind to our own self-righteousness. And we've got to recognize it in the end. God is praised for his just judgments. Now, now again, the, the question is, how can a loving God send people to hell? Notice that the love of God and the doctrine of hell are not at odds with each other. And so when we look at this, it's, it's more compatible than we realize at first than we might think. In fact, the more that you understand what the Bible says about hell, the more you realize the greatness of God's love. Why? Why is that? Well, because the message of the gospel is that this holy, righteous God who always does what is right, uh, he, he looks at us and he must deal with us justly. He must, he must punish sin. He, his holiness uh, must be vindicated and justice demands it. But in love, he doesn't want to condemn you. His, his will is not for you to perish. So what does he do? What he does is Jesus comes, God himself in the person of Jesus Christ, comes into the world. And what does he do? In the prospect of you and I going to hell, Jesus comes and takes hell for us. He takes the wrath of God in our place. Jesus tasted hell so you and I would never have to taste it, ever. That we can live abundantly. When you... When you, see the, when you see the reality of hell, you, you, you see the great, immense love of God for sinners who aren't deserving of any goodness from God. And yet, the Bible says he didn't even spare his own son to rescue us, to save us. And so that's the fifth question I come to is this good news. That the question, remember, is how do you avoid going to hell? Well, the answer to that question is that Jesus died so that you don't have to. <laughs> I'm talking about hell, and I want you to see that it, it's totally avoidable. It's totally avoidable. You, you don't have to end up there. Jesus came so that you wouldn't have to. And when you look to him, when you trust in him, you gain his righteousness. And by his death, he pays the penalty for your sin. And so God's justice is upheld, his holiness is honored, and he demonstrates his love to you and to me. I'm going to read to you some verses here, and I want you to hear them. Some of you, you know these verses really well. Try to just take a moment here and pretend you never heard, you never heard them before, like you're hearing them afresh. John 3.16 says this, and listen for the love of God. Listen for it. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He's after you in love to save you. Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death. That's hell. But 
The gift of God is the eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5.8 But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't it amazing? So you got the justice of God is satisfied by Jesus on the cross in his atoning work. And there is on the cross of Jesus a full display of God's love as Christ absorbs his wrath on your behalf. See, when you understand what the Bible says about hell, you understand better the greatness of God's love for you and the preciousness of Jesus who saves you. You say, how do I, how do I make this mine? Romans 10, 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What does that mean to call on him? It means to call on to him saying, Lord, save me. Save me from me. I'm the problem with me. I don't deserve what, what I'm coming to you. I'm not demanding this of you. I have no, way, no ground on which to demand anything. I just come to you asking you for mercy. Mercy to forgive me. Mercy to wash me clean. Mercy to set me apart unto you. Mercy to save me from a fate worse than death. And to bring me into your glorious kingdom. Will you call on him? I'm going to help you do that as, as we close. In just a moment, I'm going to lead us in a prayer. But brother, sister, there's many of you watching, listening, who you, you know this story and you're trusting in this Jesus. And you've been hearing this. And I, I hope some of this has helped you. Maybe answering some questions in your own heart, clarifying some hard truths, perhaps equipping you to be able to give an answer to another who wonders about these things. Loved ones, brothers, sisters, um, if this does not refresh our urgency to share good news with others, I don't know what will, this, this teaching, this doctrine. I think you and I would be wise to be refreshed in our prayers for lost people. In fact, I would, I would implore you to today, even right now when we close in prayer, to name the name of someone on your heart who needs this Jesus. And to ask the Lord to, give, to, to save that person and to give them an openness to hearing good news. And if God in his goodness would use you, then ask the Lord for courage and, and wisdom and a, a sensitivity to the leading of his spirit that you would be an effective um, ambassador to someone else. Loved ones, let's pray for the lost. Let's pray for people on our hearts today who need this Jesus. And if you know you need this Jesus, then I, I want to close in a prayer for you. I have a little, a little tract here. Oh, here it is. I put it here. And uh, if you'd like this, just let me know, and I'll send this to you in the mail. Good old-fashioned mail. Steps to Peace with God. It's just a, little, just a little booklet about how you can have peace with God and how you can... Um, uh, it's kind of like a review of some of the things we've been talking about today. Steps to Peace with God about you starting and entering into a relationship with God. If you'd like this, just contact me through the website, arendale.org. Email me at ross at arendale.org. Just go through our website. I'll send you a copy of this. But I'm going to pray a prayer that's just on the back of this. And if what I'm praying is, is what you're thinking and feeling, then just pray along with me. Dear Jesus, thank you for making it possible for me to find peace with God. I believe that when you died, you were paying the penalty for my sins. 
I now receive you into my life as my Savior so I can have forgiveness and never-ending life from God. Thank you for the gift of eternal life. Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away As wounds which mother chose and one Bring many sons to glory Scoffers, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is
mighty hand When the oceans rise and thunders roar I will soar with you above the storm Father, you are king over the flood I will be still and know you Find rest, my soul, in Christ alone. Know His power, in quietness and trust. When the oceans rise and thunders roar, I will soar with you above the storm. Father, you are king over the flood. I will be still and know you are God. my soul in Christ alone know his power in quietness and trust when the oceans rise and thunders roar I will soar with you above the storm. Father, you are king over the flood. I will be still and know you are God. When the oceans rise and thunders roar, I will soar with you Father, you are king over the flood. I will be still and know you are God. I will be still and know you are God. I will be still and know you are God.